0: What do resilient, sustainable, and high-performing supply chains have in common? They are all powered by GEP Software. Built on GEP Quantum, the AI-powered, low-code software platform for procurement, supply chain, and sustainability, GEP Software helps market-leading companies worldwide achieve breakthrough performance and results. GEP. Helping the world's best companies do better. Visit GEP.com.
1: Hello and welcome to The Intelligence on Economist Radio. I'm your host, Jason Palmer. Every weekday, we provide a fresh perspective on the events shaping your world. Last July, our Middle East correspondent planned a seven-day trip to Iran. He ended up being detained by authorities for seven weeks. But he was curiously free to roam and discovered an Iran that three decades of reporting had not revealed to him. And in large swathes of America, populations are slipping as birth rates and immigration decline. And that has calamitous economic effects. We head to Vermont, one of the states ponying up and paying people to move in. But first... Today, President Donald Trump is expected to unveil his long-awaited plan for peace in the Middle East.
2: I think we're going to make a deal. It might be a bigger and better deal than people in this room even understand.
1: Three years in the making, Mr. Trump has called it the ultimate deal. But Palestinian leaders have already said they'll reject it. Yesterday, Mr. Trump held separate meetings with Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu and his rival in the upcoming Israeli elections, Benny Gantz. Palestinian leaders were not invited. Many have tried and failed to resolve one of the world's most intractable conflicts. But Mr. Trump's bid might be more about politics than peace. In five weeks' time, Israel will hold its third general election in less than a year, after both Mr. Netanyahu and Mr. Gantz failed to form a majority coalition in Parliament. More than that, though, the peace plan is a welcome distraction. Both Mr. Netanyahu and Mr. Trump are facing scrutiny at home. The Israeli Prime Minister faces long-standing corruption charges and was seeking immunity from prosecution, though he denies wrongdoing. But today, he said he would withdraw that bid just hours before a hearing in Parliament that would have debated it. Meanwhile, there are increasing calls for witnesses in the impeachment trial of Mr. Trump, in particular the testimony of John Bolton, his former national security adviser. Both leaders will be glad to be seen to be busy. Playing to their bases and talking, at least, about statecraft.
2: Donald Trump, ever since he was elected, has expressed his aspiration to deliver peace between Israel and the Palestinians. As the great deal maker, he thinks that he can succeed where previous presidents have failed. Angel Pfeffer is our Israel correspondent, reporting from Jerusalem. Some of Trump's closest advisors, Jared Kushner, his son-in-law and special advisor, has been close to Israeli leadership. And other people close to Trump have been interested in the Israeli issue for a long time. And they've been very active in trying to put this plan together, which we're expecting to be quite pro-Israel, both in its detail and in its spirit. Well, how do you mean? What sorts of things are you expecting will be in the plan? So from what's been leaked so far, it seems that the Americans are changing what has been policy of decades in which the entire West Bank, which was occupied by Israel in 1967, will be the basis for a Palestinian state. And parts of it, Israel will be allowed, at least by the Americans, to annex or to extend sovereignty to parts where there are Israeli settlements, including most of East Jerusalem. And in return, the Palestinians will be allowed to have a state in isolated enclaves estimated to be about half the territory.
1: That sounds like a lot of what the Israeli side of the negotiations would want. I mean, what are the concessions for the Palestinians?
2: Well, the Palestinians don't seem to be getting much concessions, but this is an interesting peace plan where one side of the conflict is not even being informed of the plan, much less invited to Washington to discuss it. The Palestinians haven't had any kind of meaningful relationship with the Trump administration now for over two years since the administration announced that it was recognizing Jerusalem as Israel's capital. From that point onwards, any kind of engagement between the administration and the Palestinians ended. Since then, the U.S. has ended nearly all of its financial support for the Palestinian Authority and also closed down the Palestinian representation in Washington. As far as the Palestinians are concerned, the plan is dead on arrival. They've already rejected it in advance, and they won't take seriously any kind of proposal coming from the Trump administration. So what has been the whole point of the exercise? That's a very good question. So far, the point of the exercise doesn't seem to be bringing peace between the Israelis and the Palestinians. It seems to be bringing peace between the Israelis and the Israelis, which is why the administration has taken this very unorthodox step of inviting not only Israel's prime minister to discuss it, but also the leader of the opposition, which raises the question of the timing of the unrolling. Is this connected to Israel's election, which is going to take place in less than five weeks? So in what way is this a ploy to influence the election if it's just sort of a unity game among Israelis? Well, Netanyahu has very staunch supporters amongst Trump's inner circle. And the fact that they've decided to unveil this peace plan before what is a very fateful election for Netanyahu, who is facing not just a third consecutive election, which he may lose, but also he's facing criminal charges. The fact that they've decided to unveil it now, just five weeks before the elections, does look as if it's an attempt, quite a blatant attempt, to hijack the agenda of the election, which until now has been about Netanyahu's alleged corruption, and make it about something totally different, in which Netanyahu is seen to have an advantage as being a prime minister, with a good relationship with Trump, i.e. this diplomatic plan, which will obviously influence Israel's future. So they're trying to say to Israelis, look, Netanyahu is the guy who has a good relationship with Trump. You would be foolish to ditch him at this point. This is certainly the message that Netanyahu is trying to present from the meetings this week in Washington. After three years of
1: waiting for this so-called deal of the century, it now seems to serve very few of the purposes that anybody had hoped for. I mean, what will we make of it now?
2: The deal itself will obviously be rejected by the Palestinians. So as a deal, it's a non-starter. But what it is doing is it's creating a framework in which things can continue on the ground in the occupied territories, in the West Bank, where there has been for the last 52 years a de facto situation of creeping annexation by Israel. Now that the administration may recognize that, that will open the way for the Israeli government, perhaps a future Israeli government, maybe even under Benny Gantz, who, while not being as right-wing as Netanyahu, has been playing to the right-wing in an attempt to gain more votes in the election. So that the way will be open to annex at least part of the territory some of the settlements, perhaps the Jordan Valley, which many Israelis see as a crucial security area. So all these things could change on the ground, even without the Palestinians agreeing to them, once the administration has given it a green light. But how can one side cherry-pick
1: parts of a proposal if the other side has rejected it outright?
2: The Israelis will present this as them agreeing to the Trump plan, and the Palestinians will be framed as the rejectionists, and therefore the Palestinians won't proceed towards a state while Israel will have an open path towards annexation. I think that is one of the potential implications of the plan.
1: So the plan is clearly unlikely to bring about peace between Israelis and Palestinians, but if it is a cynical ploy to influence the Israeli election, do you think it'll work? It'll change voters' minds?
2: I'm not sure that this is going to sway voters that much. Most Israeli voters are quite sure who they're going to vote for. There's not much of a floating vote proportion right now. But the plan has implications for American internal politics because a lot of Donald Trump's evangelical base is also very supportive of Israel annexing parts of the West Bank. It will certainly help him with part of that base. But what uh, I think what's fascinating about this event is that we've been waiting for three years for Donald Trump's grand solution to the Israeli-Palestine conflict. And what we're getting instead is something that's much more focused on helping both Donald Trump and Benjamin Netanyahu with their own internal political problems and will not do very 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 much to further the cause of peace in the Middle East, if at all.
1: Angel, thank you very much for joining us.
2: Thank you for having me, Jason.
1: The Israeli-Palestinian peace deal is just one of the ways that President Donald Trump has pledged to remake the world. A series of bold gambles on Iran, China, and North Korea might prove in the long run to have worked out in his favor. But will Mr. Trump's luck last? On The Economist's new weekly podcast, Checks and Balance, host John Prido and a team of correspondents across the states and beyond examine the big themes shaping American politics. The first episode explores a pattern in Mr. Trump's foreign policy, which seems inspired by that of the seventh U.S. president, Andrew Jackson.
3: People searching for a pattern in Donald Trump's foreign policy will often describe it as Jacksonian, When he moved into the Oval Office, he brought a portrait of Andrew Jackson with him.
2: And by the way, he was one of our great
3: presidents. You can see it in photographs of Donald Trump on the phone at his desk. Jackson's in soft focus behind him, resplendent in his red trimmed coat and his hair swept back in an echo of the current president's signature hairdo.
1: For the global view on democracy in America, listen to Checks and Balance
0: wherever you get your podcasts. GEP AI-powered digital transformation. GEP is the global leader in AI-powered procurement and supply chain transformation, helping companies achieve impressive new levels of resilience, sustainability, and competitiveness with strategy-managed services and AI-powered low-code software platform, GEP Quantum. Hundreds of market-leading companies worldwide count on GEP to transform their procurement and supply chain operations and achieve amazing results. GEP.com. I saw, I
3: think it must have been about five people, enter the hotel lobby. They looked as if they were on a mission, and uh, they summoned me with the words, Mr. Pelham. They handed me a sheet of paper in Farsi, and what they said it said was that uh, a judge had given them authority to question me for up to 48 hours. Nicholas Pelham
1: is The Economist's Middle East correspondent. Last July, he received a rare journalist's visa
3: to visit Iran on the day he was due to fly home, he was detained. I was put into the car and uh, shown a blindfold, and we said, we're going to put this on you, and so I was blindfolded, and we sped off out of the airport. I was in between two people sitting either the other side of me in the back seat. They drove off at speed, at pretty fast speed, round several roundabouts. I was not only worried about losing my sense of direction, but sort of hitting my head and tried to reach out to sort of steady myself by putting my hand on the seat in front. My hands were put back down to my sides. It was yeah, clear I think by this stage I was not going to catch the flight. Nicholas has been
1: reporting from the Middle East for more than 30 years. He'd been to Iran multiple times before and knew the trip wasn't without risk and he had taken precautions consulting the
3: embassy and his contacts in Iran before deciding whether to go. This is a regime which at the best of times feels paranoid feels deeply suspicious about the intentions of the outside world suspects that all journalists are really spies and we're very soft targets in the past you know journalists have been detained but I think that's how a lot of us do this job, no? We we, we step into the unknown and we hope that we're gonna come back with something which by, by doing that which nobody else is going to have. You know, if you didn't take any risks in this job, particularly sort of reporting in, in in the Middle East, I don't think you could do it properly. I don't think I panicked. Nicholas's experience
1: in Iran is recounted for the first time in the new edition of 1843, The Economist's
3: Sister Magazine. I was escorted out of the car into another building which turned out to be a detention center um, somewhere in the southern Tehran. And I was then led to a cell. There was a blanket, an otherwise sort of bare cell. The guard pointed to, um, I went over to pick up the blanket and the door was banged shut behind me. It's a very strange process. Each individual move in itself is not hugely alarming. It's the kind of, the sum of the experience is more intense than each individual sort of change in in the script or your condition. And it's almost so incremental that the alarm is greater when you look back on it than in the moment. I did, at several occasions, suggest that I should have a right to see a lawyer and contact my embassy. But it was made clear that if this process was going to end happily, um, I should cooperate. And, you know, at every step, there's a warning that if you don't cooperate, you end up in a vein prison. They said, you know what happens there, don't you? Almost confirming the grim picture that uh, the world has of Aveen prison. It is Iran's largest prison. It's in the north of Tehran, up on the mountainside. It's a place which is completely cut off from the outside world. You don't get consular visits. You're held in solitary confinement. And that's also where Nazanin Zaghari Radcliffe, a british Iranian dual national, is being held. Her fate was in my mind, the fate of you know many other foreigners, some dual nationals, some not, was also in my mind. You know, it is not that uncommon for Iran to detain foreigners when they end up in the country. It is one of the tools that they use of exercising pressure against the West, and it's one that they've been exercising quite frequently in recent years, so... Yes, I think one of the reasons actually even for telling this story is to remember those who are still being held, including Nazanin, and not to forget their plight, I was incredibly lucky. I was treated with, on the whole with velvet gloves. Um, Many are being held in much worse conditions. The first night I was being interrogated in the airport. The second day I was in, in a detention center. After that point I was taken for three days to a safe house, which I think was in an apartment hotel. And then again I was moved once more. Blindfolds came on taken to another hotel. But essentially, it was a kind of a quantum leap in the conditions in which I'd been held and actually conditions I'd ever been in in Tehran before. The mornings would be taken up with interrogation and questioning. For the rest of the time, I was free to move around uh, the city. I was not allowed to work. There was nobody to vet my every word. I presumed that I was being followed or that people were listening on a phone that I'd been given by the authorities. But I felt that I was left on my own devices. and And that sort of for me felt like a unique experience in Tehran and one that I should try to make the most of. Here I was, just sort of allowed to roam freely in Tehran. I mean, in many ways, this is a reporter's dream. (laughs) You're heavily controlled when when you're in Iran on a press visa. You have somebody who's monitoring everything you say. It's really hard to talk to people to get a sense of what people are thinking without the presence of the minder. It's an absolutely fascinating place. It's so vibrant. It's so sort of buzzing with fascinating conversation with... There's been a splurge of cafes that have opened across town which are just sort of packed with people. It's a very uninhibited culture. People readily strike up conversations in in cafes. It's very easy to make friends. There's sort of music everywhere you go. Every evening I'd be out either going to a concert or going to a play. There are almost as many plays on in Tehran as there are in in the west end of London. A buzzing place, um, and one I wanted to make the most of. I think initially I was, I was the one who was doing the censoring. I was terrified of kind of what people might be listening to on my on my phone. I would sort of leave it at one end of the cafe and go and talk to people at the other end. It just seemed that every conversation I had would sort of end up in an anti-regime rant. It was, <laughs> it was astonishing, and I was sort of terrified of the things that people were telling me. There was a fascination, but there was also a fear that that this could be incriminating. There are sort of two worlds in, in Iran. There's the virtual reality that you see on television, which is a kind of society which is controlled by clerics, which is deeply religious, very conservative, respectful of the authorities, and which deeply dislikes the West. And then there's a real world of Tehran, which is sort of almost diametrically opposed to all of those things. It feels very cosmopolitan, very engaged with the West. <laughs> Iranians are extraordinarily resilient. This isn't the first time they've had to live under sanctions. Indeed, sort of pretty much the history of the Islamic Republic since 1979. They've been living in some either war economy or cold war economy for the past 40 years. It's clearly chastened times, but Iranians are determined to make the most of the moment. I think the condition that I was in and the conditions that those who were outside trying to get me out thought I was in were, were not. There was quite a gap between them. I think when you're here and you're, you know, my wife my colleagues went through enormous anguish about what I was, was suffering. And for much of the time, I didn't really feel I was suffering at all. I felt I was, every time I'd get a call, part of me was very grateful that there were people outside who cared for me and were doing their utmost for me. But part of it also felt as if I was being sort of hauled back from, from discovering more of this world. This sort of kaleidoscope of, of a kind of fun-loving people who are living in really hard times both because of the people who are ruling over them and because of the sanctions that, that are imposed upon them from outside but somehow scraping through and not just scraping through but really living life to its full I suppose there's, a, there's an element of any oppressive regime where you don't know what tomorrow brings you know. and while I was in Tehran I didn't know what tomorrow was going to bring I didn't know whether I really was going to end up in Evin prison or whether I was going to get out and there's this kind of strange sense of sort of almost liberation and captivity it was that sort of Alice in Wonderland world which I'm going to look back on and think that I had a taste of it and will always want to go back. I'm not sure the decision is going to be mine. If it was, I'd go back tomorrow.
1: Nicholas Pelham tells the extraordinary story of his seven weeks in Iran in the new edition of 1843, The Economist's sister magazine. Subscribe to 1843 at economist.com slash 1843 offer. And you can hear his full retelling on The Economist Asks, our interview podcast. Across America, populations are dwindling. Eighty percent of counties lost adults in the decade up to 2017, and that is bad news for local economies. The scale of the decline is new, thanks to an aging workforce, falling fertility rates, and less immigration. The drop is particularly sharp in the Midwest and the Northeast. Vermont, however, has found one way to entice people to live there.
4: Well, Beth Dow's husband sent her an article about Vermont paying people who work from home to move to the state as a joke. But it quickly went from a joke to a whim to moving.
1: Rosemary Ward covers America's northeast for The Economist.
4: Within a few months, they had left Denver, Colorado, which they had found increasingly expensive, to Vermont, a town of 15,000 people called Bennington. She still works for the same company, working from home in Vermont. Once they had moved, they were able to get up to $5,000 to move to the state to cover their moving costs.
1: And and Vermont is offering people that that kind of money just to move there simply because its population is, is slipping?
4: Yes, but it's been much worse lately, partly because they have one of the oldest workforces in the country, falling fertility rates and little immigration. Only about 500 immigrants moved to the state last year. So a new bill went into effect in January. The state will now pay $7,500 to cover moving costs if people relocate and work for local Vermont employers.
1: I mean, that seems like a a reasonable amount of money for a state to, to pony up just to get people to move. I mean, Vermont has always been kind of a small state, right?
4: It has. It's always been a small state, but this depopulation is nearing a crisis point. Even the governor acknowledged this in his budget address last week, calling the demographic crisis the greatest challenge we face as a state. More than half the county saw population declines since 2010, and the rural ones were especially hard hit. In seven counties, including the one where the dows moved, more people died than were born. And the remaining population can't support local business, local schools. So you, you get this sort of slow ebbing away of the economic drivers as well as the economic perks of living in a rural area.
1: And and I suppose that kind of population ebbing away is, is, is very much happening elsewhere. Are, are other states trying similar schemes?
4: Absolutely. It sort of reminds me of the Homestead Act in the 1800s where the federal government gave land away to settlers and land is up for grabs again in places like Curtis, Nebraska, a small town which is offering free plots to people who can build a single family home on that site. Tulsa in Oklahoma through the George Kaiser Family Foundation, which is a charity, is giving $10,000 and workspace to people who move to the city for at least a year. And they're hoping it'll attract high-earning remote workers to the city and become part of the community. The first year, 10,000 people from 155 countries applied for just 100 slots.
1: So 100 slots doesn't sound like a very big number for what you're describing as a fairly big problem. I mean, will will these efforts actually be able to make a difference if that's the, the kind of level they're at?
4: No. And in fact, in Vermont, for instance, 371 people moved last year to claim the remote worker grants, including 79 children. And the number is small. Amy Liu of Brookings Institution wondered if the experiments would be too small to have an impact. And she also worried that talent attraction might repeat the mistakes of corporation attraction, where when the incentives leave or tax breaks expire, the companies will leave as well. But in a small state like Vermont, having people with six-figure salaries and children can have a big impact. Another experiment would be to use place-based visas or Heartland visas Instead of granting visas based on skills or family connections, have migrants move to struggling cities or states with population and labor shortages, a number of mayors across the country are on board, as are some of the Democratic presidential candidates. And Vermont certainly could do with an immigration boost.
1: Rosemary, thank you very much for your time.
4: Thank you for having me, Jason. Lovely chatting with you.
1: That's all for this episode of The Intelligence. If you like us, why not give us a rating on Apple Podcasts? And see you back here tomorrow.
0: AI-powered digital transformation. GEP is the global leader in AI-powered procurement and supply chain transformation, helping companies achieve impressive new levels of resilience, sustainability, and competitiveness with strategy-managed services and AI-powered low-code software platform, GEP Quantum. Hundreds of market-leading companies worldwide count on GEP to transform their procurement and supply chain operations and achieve amazing results. GEP.com.